Imagine that you and a couple of coworkers, after sitting around and talking about it for years and years, are finally going to do it. You're going to break away. You're going to be using your entre- entrepreneurial spirits and start something new on your own. So today's the day. You are going to go for it. Or more specifically, tonight is the night that you make history. Tonight you are going to be famous. Tonight's the night that everyone will know you as jewelry thieves. Excited about it? All right. So this is the plan. You're going to sneak down the back alley. You're going to pull off the vent from the outside of the building, and then you're going to scale your way up the vent in the inside of the jewelry box, is what we're going to call it. And then you're going to drop down in. You're going to pick up all the rubies and all the diamonds, put them in your backpack, and you're going to scale back up, get out the vent, out into the car where your friend is going to be waiting in the car, and there will be no security guards will know what's going on. You're going to get in the car, and they're going to drive away, and they're going to take you to where the third co-worker is waiting for you up in the mountains and you're going to find an old deserted barn and you're going to dig a hole in the barn and you're going to bury it and then you're going to come back to it when you need to get to it and it's going to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams just like the movies. Sound fun? This is the scenario proposed to the host of a Discovery Channel show that I like. It's called Mythbusters. I don't know if you're familiar with the show. And they did an episode called Mythshin Impossible, where they took all of these movie scenarios and tried to act them back out in real life. Could you possibly do this in real life? If you're familiar with the show, Adam and Jamie are the two hosts of the show. And so they competed with each other to see who could actually get into a jewelry store and be able to do it undetected and be able to, to do these things that we see happen in the movies all the time. Well, the first guy who went, his name is Adam. He, he designed a backpack with a vacuum cleaner in it and had suction cups. And so he decided to go up through the vent with suction cups. And so that thing would, and it would go all the way up through the wall. And he got about halfway up the wall, and then the suction in his vacuum cleaner started losing suction. And so about halfway up the vent, he started sliding down the vent, and he had to be retrieved uh, using the safety harness to make sure that he didn't get hurt. And they had to drag him out and pull him out. The second guy, Adam, he, uh, excuse me, Jamie was the second one, so he went and he designed, his philosophy was that he would be able to use magnets. And just like in, in, the, in the movies where they have those magnets that go in your hand, he had to come up with something much more high-tech than that. And he found these two magnets, electromagnets, that could hold between 500 or 1,000 pounds in one magnet. And so he used that, and he won the competition. He was able to scale the inside of, a, of the duct, the air duct, and get his way into uh, the jewelry box and be able to uh, be successful in doing that. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Wouldn't that be exciting to try? I, I mean the, the show part of it, not the jewelry part of it. Uh, some of you are too excited to try that already, and I just, gave, I just pushed you over the cliff is what just happened uh, now. Uh, so if you've played around with magnets before, and many of you have, you do as a kid, you, magnets will do different things, and you'll push them around, and they'll push and pull in different directions, but if you take a bunch of them and kind of click them together, you actually get a more powerful magnet, and you can do a lot of different things with it. But I have never imagined having a 500 to 1,000 pounds of weight that that magnet could hold, and when Jamie here on the show, when he did it, he put one of those on a bracket that he could hold on with each hand and with each foot to be able to climb up through that. Can you imagine if those two brackets turned and faced each other and those magnets slammed together? There's no human that I'm aware of on earth that would be able to pull a thousand pounds of pressure to be able to pull that connection apart. 
Today we're going to be talking about the connection, the friendship between Jonathan and David. They had a powerful connection with each other that held together against all odds, all types of pressure that is trying to pull away at that connection. It was able to hold strong. Their friendship is documented in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you've got your Bibles, you make your way there this morning. I'll be in the New International Version. 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we're going to focus on those events there. If you haven't been with us before, if you're watching online for the first time, my name is Pastor Milo, and I'm on the journey with you trekking our way through the life of David and all the different relationships uh, that he has along the way. And as we've been on this biblical journey in the life of David, we see him, we talked about this last week, he is the toughest kid in all of Scripture, and he is the greatest king, the most celebrated king in all of Israel's history, and then he is the only human ever to be given the title of the man after God's own heart. So we'll pick up the story after David and Goliath, the most familiar of the stories. Now his name is beginning to grow in popularity. People know his name. He's now a military leader, and he's this up-and-coming new general that people are paying attention to. They're talking about him all through Israel. And now, as we get our eyes on him, that, that not only is he the King Saul working as his right-hand man, but we talked about last week, King Saul's got a jealous eye on him. He's watching him. But his son, Jonathan, becomes dear friends with him. So let's take a look. Chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in 18. It says this, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed, because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards the evening, go to the place where you hid when all of this trouble began, and wait by the stone, Ezel. I will shoot through three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There's no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, well, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. Then skip ahead a few verses down to verse 35. We see what happens. Verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run, find the arrows as I shoot. And the boy ran, and he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? And then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. And the boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all of the plans. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapon to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and they wept together, but David wept the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Dear Lord, we open your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that it would, it would teach us something new about friendships. Lord, that it would be something that would change how we approach our lives this morning. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thicker than blood. Uh, as I said, this is a familiar story about Don, Jonathan and David, the one uh, that is this incredible narrative, this deep love between two friends and affection that existed between these two brothers from other mothers. Uh, these two guys were, were definitely a shining example of true loyalty and a picture of what should take place between friends and between family members. And here's the thing. While the story is familiar to most of us, the experience is anything but 
familiar. How many friends do you have on Facebook or on Instagram? You have quite a few. You may have five. You may have ten. You may have five hundred. You may have a thousand. Uh, the reality is, is when we call them friends, uh, they are very different. These social media contacts are very different from our other friends. But we use the same title. We actually use the same title synonymously for a lot of different things. People who share our interests, we call them friends. People who uh, we're on social media with, we call them friends. But the people who we have long-lasting, deep, committed relationships with, we also call them friends. But it's a little bit different, isn't it? Sebastian Younger wrote a book called Tribe. And after studying soldiers returning from war from Iraq and Afghanistan, he found that there's a lot more PTSD uh, with returning soldiers than in any other generation previously. Even further, he noted that there are more, caused, more cases of PTSD here in the United States than any other of the countries in the world. And he explains that this way. He says that when soldiers come back, they have no brotherhood or they have no meaningful connection that match with those deep belonging that they found in the military. And so then when they return to an environment that, that has uh, no strong human connections with each other that they had found there, they begin to struggle to function well in society. And in many cases, there are even those who will re-enlist to go back to be able to find that brotherhood, to be able to find that relationship that they are longing for so desperately, even with the very real possibility of personal harm coming to themselves or danger that they are putting themselves into it, just in order to recapture that sense of community that they felt so very exposed without. But it's not just soldiers who need this type of connection. We all do. We all need friends. We need real friends. And in each of us, there's a part of us that wants to be independent, yes, but there's another part of us that just longs for significant relationships. Why? Because we were created to be this way. So what does a real friendship look like then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the first ingredient of a great friendship. Great friendships require great loyalty. Great friendships require great Loyalty. Let's take a look at how these first two uh, first connected. It occurs immediately after David's epic battle with the Goliath, the giant. So this is back in chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. 18, beginning in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Great friendships require great loyalty. We see here that there's this like immediate bond that happens between these two as they met. It doesn't say specifically as to why they hit it off so well. And one of the things we do know about these two young men is they had very similar ideals when it came to the battlefield. Uh, most famously, obviously, we know about David and Goliath where he was vastly outpowered or vastly uh, understaffed, uh, if you will, to be able to go against such a great opponent. But he comes out victorious. The same thing happens with Jonathan. There's an example of Jonathan when the Philistines have pinned down uh, the Israelites in their camp and he and his armor bearer go out late into the night and they sneak out against the enemy, climb, scale a mountain. They get up the side of this cliffside and they get to the top of it and they fight off the enemy. They're outnumbered, they're outmanned, but he still comes out on top. They are victorious that day. And so there's something very similar about them when it comes to their battlefield. 
And usually when it comes to our friendships, there's something that we have in common. Again, we're not exactly sure what it is that these guys had in common. I don't think that it was playing softball. I don't think that it was crafting. Uh, Maybe they were working on cars. I don't understand. Maybe they were watching football together. Uh, Maybe they were playing hours and hours of Call of Duty together. I'm not sure. But there was something that brought them together, something that connected them together, and it just worked. It just clicked. And David and Jonathan went as far to make a pact with each other. They swore an oath that they would be loyal to one another as friends. So as they swore this oath to each other, let's, let's be real. This is a little bit weird for us in our modern context. I, I, I don't remember a friendship where I swore loyalty to that friendship to say, I'm going to be in this. But this is a different culture. It's a different time. It was more common in that day. And certainly when we look through different cultures in history, we see this as a common thread in history, probably most famously here in the United States and the New World with the Native Americans. The Native Americans would often make these pacts, make these commitments to one another. And then certainly when the Europeans uh, began to come in, they start making these pacts where they would actually cut their arm or cut themselves somewhere. Each person would do that. And they would take those two uh, bloodletting and they would rub the blood together, demonstrating that they were what? Blood brothers. Somebody said, yeah, that they were blood brothers. So we see that happen because they wanted to be what? They wanted to be committed to each other, wanted to be connected to one another. But as you know, as we look at our history, the Native Americans were the ones that got, that pushed out of those deals. Those deals were false. Those deals were broken oftentimes, that it was all a ruse. It was all to take away their land, to take away all of who they were and their culture and all that was all being taken away from them. That, that commitment was broken. But it's not specific to us here in the United States or in the new world or in our, you know, current society. It's been happening all in humankind. It's part of our sin nature. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 6 puts it this way. It says, many will say that they are loyal friends, but who can find one that is truly reliable? So anyone can make a grand gesture like what Jonathan did. They can take off their cloak. They can take off their armor. They can give it to somebody else. But what will David and Jonathan's legacy really be? What will the friendship really prove to be? We'll just take a look at that in a moment. I'll take a side note here and just say, when we take an opportunity as we choose our friendships, as we choose our relationships with one another, on what basis do we choose those relationships? Is it based on a person's popularity? When we're young, we make this mistake. We do this often. We, we, we make our relationships based on whether that person is in the in crowd and we try to be popular. We try to pursue that. It's not just kids though, friends. Adults do the same thing. We just call it a different, we call it networking. And it's exactly the same thing where we're trying to make connections that say, what does this person do for me? If I attach myself to them, how do they help me? What does this give me? Uh, how does this help me? So you can still make the same mistakes in the relationships that you're choosing, basing it on what they can do for you or give to you. Now, it may be strategic, yes, but is it wise? You see, actually what's wise is to choose people that you can be loyal to. Choose people that you can be loyal to. Think about it. Uh, if you are loyal to the wrong person, then you're going to be pulled and pressured to be doing and, and be uh, participating in things that you don't want to actually be connected with. And the most extreme example is you might find yourself being connected and being loyal to a person who is committing high uh, misdemeanors and crimes, right? Like you, you don't want that, but if you are loyal to that person, then you might be the fall guy. 
Choose people that you can actually be committed to. What's also wise is to look for people who can be loyal to you. If you're in the process of building a new relationship and, and you realize you've got this bad feeling that that relationship feels like it's a little bit one-sided, you might need to get out. If you start to realize that that person uh, doesn't show up when they say that they will or they're not actually there for you as they say that they're going to be or when it's convenient for them to drop their plans with you so that they can do uh, with something else or someone else that's more beneficial for them to do so, that's not the same type of relationship that you're looking for. It's not a good sign. So Jonathan and David, they start out with this immediate connection where they pledge loyalty to one another. But would it stick would that bond be able to hold? Their commitment is going to be put to the test. Put to the test by the man with the green in his eyes, those jealous eyes of King Saul. And here's where we find the second ingredient of a great friendship. It's this. Great friendships involve great risk. Great friendships involve great risk. Saul has made David this military commander. David keeps win winning battles uh, on the behalf of the Israelites. And as we talked about last week, Saul is incredibly intimidated uh, by this. And he tries to even kill him by pinning him against the wall with a spear. That is not a friend, friends. And so David asked Jonathan to keep him informed about what Saul is up to, what Saul is doing, what Saul's plans are. And Jonathan discovers Saul's most recent plot against David. And then he comes up with a way to secretly warn David about what's going to happen. And after this warning, after this secret tip, David is going to be on the run. David is going to be in hiding in caves and in the wilderness for the next six to seven years running from Saul. Here's what happens, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 7. But if he, this is talking about Saul, if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then you can kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Great friendships involve great risk. This recommitment to loyalty is a huge risk to Jonathan. Think about it. His father is determined to bring an end to the life of David, no matter the cost. If he gets on the king's bad side, then he is going to be looked at as an enemy of the crown. And, and specifically, Jonathan is an heir to the throne. And so when push comes to serve, Saul would definitely see David. If he is looking at David as his rival, then he's going to see Jonathan. That if push comes to shove, he's expecting that Jonathan is going to side with him. And what David is doing here is he's asking, if, if push comes to shove, if, if you would be with me, then you're going to be what? Against your own father, against the throne, against the king. He's actually asking him to be disloyal to his own father. Asking him to actually have this relationship that's thicker than blood. This is risky business, friends. Great friendships involve great risk. And here's why risk is a part of the equation. If you're not committed to the relationship, then you won't take the risk. Risk proves the depth of the relationship. Then when you risk something, and for the sake of the friendship, then trust begins to grow. 
And then when you go and you take risk at an even deeper level, then deeper levels of trust begin to grow. You gain this common emotional investment that both of you have made to the relationship, and the friendship gets deeper and deeper and deeper because of the price that you have both paid of risk to make it happen. And what I'm sharing with you is not a new idea here either. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, it says this, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help you in time of need. See, I don't think you can actually call it a friendship unless that relationship has required sacrifice, to take risk for the sake of the other person. For here, for Jonathan, it meant actually risking his own safety or potentially risking his own life. But maybe for you and I, it's, it's simpler than that. It might be risking your convenience to be able to help somebody uh, when they need assistance late into the night, uh, risking your convenience to do that. Or it might be the idea of risking conflict, of being willing to be able to talk to a friend when he or she needs to be talked to, uh, when, when everyone else is scattering because they don't want to risk the relationship to talk to this person, that you love them enough to be able to approach them and risk breaking that relationship because you want to build trust with them and share with them what is most important for them to hear. That's the difference between an acquaintance and a friend. And you really learn who your friends are when the tough times come. That's why really there's only a very small list of people that you're going to call when you're in trouble. That small list of people when trouble comes is what this proverb is talking about. A friend is always loyal. A brother is born to help you in time of need, in your time of trouble, in your time of adversity. That's what this proverb is about. So let's review. Great friendships require great loyalty. Great friendships involve great risk. Are you tracking with me so far? These are the ingredients of a great friendship, right? Here's the thing. If we stop here, we stop short of the true meaning of what is happening here. If we stop here, you could have been at a public assembly at a public high school, and you would agree with everything that I'm saying. If we stop here, I could be a Jewish rabbi teaching in the synagogue, and we could stop here, and that would be fine. We could actually be across the street at the Unitarian Church, where I could be talking from any faith tradition, any moral standard that I would be talking through and be able to communicate to you, and we would all agree, this is perfectly fine. This is what friendships are meant to look like. But if we stop here, we stop short of what a great friendship is really meant to be. I spent a number of years, about 10 years in the South. And when we first got married, and then when we came back about 10 years later, when we moved back to Buffalo, one, we were one of those families, and maybe you're one of these families who would get in the car, and we would take the 90-minute drive down the 90 to be able to visit Erie, PA, so that we could do what? So that we could get ourselves a chicken sandwich. Now, even with one close by here in Cheektowaga, and yes, I can go there anytime I want. If I'm going to visit family uh, in South Carolina, where most of my family lives, when I get to that exit on the 90, it's almost like the wheel starts to pull over that direction because there's an attraction to be able to go. This is where the vehicle is supposed to go. Mark Miller, an executive of Chick-fil-A, he wrote a book on their behalf a few years back describing what it means to have great teams and great leaders. The book is called, if you're interested at all, The Secret of Teams. It's an excellent book, an excellent read. And they talk about leadership, but they also give away one of their company secrets, lemonade. 
If you've ever, I mean, chicken is one thing, but the other thing that they're so excellent, when you go and you taste that lemonade, there is something spectacular about the lemonade from Chick-fil-A. And they give the, the secret sauce in this book to it. And I'm going to share it with you so you don't even have to buy the book. You ready? This is what you do. You start with fresh squeezed lemons. And then you add water. And then you add sugar. That's it. That's the secret sauce. But you take away any of those ingredients and there's something missing. You take away any of those ingredients and it's not lemonade anymore. When it comes to great relationships, we got the same thing is true there. It only requires a few ingredients, but you leave any of them out, you'll find yourself, as many of you may be here this morning, longing for something more. There is something missing. Here's the last point. It may be controversial to you, but it's actually the reality of what a true friendship looks like. Great Great friendships include a great God. Great friendships include a great God. And you may look at the friendships that you have, the relationships you have. I, I've got good friendships. I've got great friendships that do not include God. And that may be true, but I believe that that is a missing ingredient to your relationship that will at some point break and fall apart. Look what happens here in 1 Samuel 23. So we're going a couple chapters ahead. Beginning in verse 15. While David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horash and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Did you catch that? Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant there again before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. The main thing I want you to notice here is verse 18. If great friendships include a great God, they renewed their commitment to each other before the Lord. The best friendships, the best relationships, the healthiest marriages, the best families are a three-way arrangement. The two people plus God. That's what actually makes all the difference in the world. And Jonathan encourages David in his relationship with God. He told him to stay strong in your faith. It's a difficult time. The king, my father, is trying to kill you. And if he does so, okay, but don't be afraid because God is going to take care of you. Don't give up. He also encourages David to look at God's promises he says, know that God has promised you to be the anointed king of Israel. It's going to happen. Do not be discouraged. You can trust that God will do it. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17 says this, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend will sharpen a friend. Or some of you say a man will sharpen another man's face. Out there in the wilderness, Jonathan is sharpening David, sharpening in his faith in God. Does your friendship, that friendship that you think of when I say great friendships, does it include your faith in God? Or is it just about sports and just about hobbies and just about the things that you have in common? Oh, but your best friend ought to challenge you about things of faith. Your best friend ought to challenge you about your relationship with a holy God. Your best friend ought to drive you forward in that environment. Sharpen you by telling you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. As a brother or sister in Christ, that is their responsibility if they are going to be a great friend. When we think about the traits of great friendships exemplified by David and Jonathan, 
we certainly are going to draw a direct line, a direct connection to the friend who displays all of those traits. The friend who has made the ultimate commitment to you and to me. The friend who took the greatest risk and made the greatest sacrifice for you and for me. The friend who has definitely centered his life on God. The friend who loves you like no other. And here's how Jesus describes that friendship. In John chapter 15, verse 12, it says this. My command to you is this. Love each other, what? As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Why did I give you that goofy example at the beginning of Mythbusters and climbing uh, into the, the jewelry box and all of that? If you've seen the episode, the ridiculousness of what was going on is he actually did make it into the thing, but he completely failed in the sense of being quiet enough to actually rob a jewelry store because these magnets, as they went in, they just slammed. It sounded like King Kong climbing the side of the building. There's no way that he would have gotten in secretly. But see, that's actually what great friendships that are, that are based on a great God look like. They clang, they clang, they bang. They're allowed for everyone to see on display for all to see because it's been demonstrated even more so than anyone else how Jesus did the same thing. When he called out his love for all of humankind, there was no mistaking the sound. That is the gospel ringing out for all to hear. The reverberations were made across all of the planet when he declared his friendship, his love for all mankind. Our great Savior stretched out his arms. He says, I'm making this commitment to you. Our great Savior stretched out his arms. He says, I'm taking this risk for you. Our great Savior stretched out his arms. He said, I love you this much. Dear Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that we have been challenged here. We thank you so much for risking it all, for making this beautiful gift of salvation available to each and every one of us. Lord, let us remember that, remember that well this morning in Jesus' name. So we come this morning to a time of communion. A time at the Lord's Supper, which we have uh, as, as a remembrance of me. This do and remembrance of me is what we hear. This reminder of the great sacrifice, the great depth at which Jesus went to make that relationship whole between God and man. That relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden, Eden where sin entered the world. And so if you got one this morning on your way in, that little cup, it should have... Uh, the, the, the top is able to peel away at the top of it. There's juice down there in the bottom. If you don't have one, we certainly have more there in the back we want to be able to hand out. If you're watching from home, uh, there's nothing special about this juice or special about this waiver, wafer. It's just a way for us to be able to be reminded of that meal that was held uh, between Jesus and his disciples. And when he said, this do it and remembers me, as often as you eat, as often as you drink, remember the sacrifice that was made. So we do that this morning. So if you're at home, you can do that with coffee and donuts, with orange juice and eggs, whatever it looks like. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it reads this way. For I received from you the Lord I also delivered to you on the night that it was betrayed, he took bread. So if you take off that top layer, if you've already done it, many of you have, peel back that plastic and you'll see that wafer there. 
As you take it, this is a reminder to you of the life that was broken for you. So this do in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And in the same way, he took the cup, it says. So let's do it here carefully in the same way. If you look in that cup, it's grape juice here. It's representative of the blood of Christ that was spilled for you and for me. That risk, that sacrifice he made in order for you and I to be able to call ourselves, I am a friend of God. So 1 Corinthians 11 says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for risking it all. Lord, for making the ultimate commitment. Lord, we know that our side of the commitment will be broken often. We're human, broken, damaged people, which is why we need a Savior. So, Lord, if there's any listening to the sound of my voice this morning who have never made that commitment, Lord, I pray, I pray that it would be real today, that they would long for a great friendship with the great Savior. In Jesus' name I pray.